Gave me Falcha. Welcome to Crombieha Short Stories and Poetry for September 15th, 2023. Hello, my name's Terrence O'Donnell. I'm here with some more good stories and poetry for everyone this week. Although this week it's just stories. This once a week podcast is being hosted on rss.com and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Intunes, Google Podcasts, Deezer, and a few others. This podcast is free to subscribe to in all these apps. For all who care to listen, especially if you're using mobile apps. A little about me. I'm a senior citizen of Irish descent and a self-professed Shauna Kay, a Gaelic storyteller. I want listeners to feel like we are sitting under the village oak tree, the Crombieha, which translates to the tree of life. While here together, I will read to you fictional stories and poetry from writers I found in Medium.com, including some of my own stories on occasion. Some are scary. Some are very thoughtful and soul-searching. Others are just plain fun. In order to listen to and read the accompanying newsletter medium, you will need to sign up for a subscription. I offer the newsletter free for the first month in Substack, then they get paywalled. If you want to listen to them on a web browser with no financial obligations and don't care about reading the stories and poems, you can listen to them on my website at www.crombieha.com. I do have a donations tab on the rss.com webpage where this show is hosted, Support My Work much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. My goal is to entertain you with good stories and poetry from writers around the world that will spark your imagination, and hopefully they will stay with you a wee bit after we parted for the day. This week I have four stories for everyone to listen to. Dystopian futures, and a little bit of scary stuff. The last one has got a bit of an Irish flair to it. That's one of my own, as the story that I had originally posted here uh, the author pulled it, at the, and I didn't catch it until today. So we're going to stick in one of my own. My first story is called A Walk in the Snow by David Sheehan. It has been 20 years since the EMPWs, electromagnetic pulse weapons, had destroyed any semblance of normalcy, and Eris couldn't believe how hard it was to hike so far to the ocean was. Air travel no longer worked, and routes that had once been easily drivable were warped and broken. Walking was the best means of getting one place to another. Eris had left Albany, New York, in hopes of finding relatives in Osterville, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod. With every step, the visions of hugging and, better yet, talking to a friendly face strengthened the resolve to make it home. Figuring an average of 10 miles a day, Eris reckoned it would take about 25 days to complete the trip. The plan was to arrive on Christmas Day, as long as there were no life-threatening obstacles to overcome. The non-nuclear war of EMPWs had begun innocently in, in January, winter of 2022. The entire world was reeling from the devastating effects of COVID-19 and its various strains. Fingers were pointed, feelings were hurt, irrational diplomats and hostile nations began bickering, and local fights turned into international incidents. Then in the spring of 2023, drones became headline news as they delivered devastating bombs to places far away, places that weren't here in the USA. Then, December of 2023, drone attacks using electromagnetic pulses on all major USA electric power stations led to cascading failures, plunging the country into darkness long enough for the nation to be splintered into factions, militaristic overflows of the anger, and the unrest building from the political unrest of the early part of the century. By March of 2024, the USA would no longer united, and as regional groups called parties 
wrested control from the traditional government and the bitter fighting and destruction ensued. Unrest ruled the day and night. Murder and disregard for what was once normal behavior brought a new sense of fear, terror, especially if you were not part of the correct party or if you were a woman. The larger parties were called the lefties and the righties, and the smaller ones had names like Tread on Me and Crusaders. Mostly folks who wanted to just be left alone sought shelter in areas where landmines had not destroyed roads and bridges and cities. While tracking down the mass pike, stopping to sit on one edge of what was once an overpass fence, Eris ruminated on the months spent camping along the Hudson River and the attack that left Eris almost dead. Thinking, I just put my head underwater for a second to wash my face and wet my hair, when suddenly being yanked up by the hood of my sweatshirt, sharp pain as the baseball bat hit me full tilt on the left knee, again on the side of the head, then darkness. Left to die, but awakening in the middle of the night, hearing the June crickets and the night critters scampering about in the forest next to the Hudson, knowing it would take a while for the leg to heal well enough to walk. Relating the incident to only individuals that could be trusted and who would provide some safety. With no pain medication, Eris daydreamed to reduce the pain. The thoughts of hot summer days as a kid walking the beach with mom and pup, chasing the, after the little shorebirds that scurried away like they owed you money when you came close. The day spent dry, diving into the waves of Craigsville Beach with friends on the warm Gulf Stream side of Cape Cod and riding bicycles down hot tar roads and chasing fireflies at night, always laughing and having fun. Then, suddenly, pain from the knee jolts Paris from pleasant thoughts, and the plan begins to take shape. Simply put, I will go home, unquote, as soon as I am able. The only meaningful items remaining from the teen years, a heart-shaped locket and a Swiss army knife, were in a leather pouch hanging around the neck, as Eris spent the rest of the summer and autumn gathering and preparing for what would be the long test of endurance, but important, return to the safety and warmth of family. Travel light, eat on the go, camp at night, and stay out of anyone's way. Eris practiced at each of these things and healed. The plan was to head south, then east on Route 90, the New York Thruway, to Massachusetts Turnpike to 495, 25, or 28, if they still existed, over the Bourne Bridge, if still spanning the Cape Cod Canal. Eris would leave on December 1st, out of the area, with no goodbyes or thanks. Just go for a hike and never look back. Camping at night and hiding in around the shadows by day, and only speaking to other single souls wanting nothing to do with groups, which generally produce violence to those not affiliated with them. Hearing stories of unchecked hangings and rapes and senseless murder of innocent people, Eris determined that getting home to Cape Cod continued to be the only thing that made sense, and gave Eris a purpose. Also, it was December, and this was a very cold winter with lots of snow. Cape Cod could be a little less harsh. Alone time was safe time, and Nares knew by now that to stay that way, traveling by day and resting at night. Stepping quietly into the woods when voices were heard, or more than one person was spotted, was keeping Eris on track and not deviating from the plan to arrive by Christmas. The backpack was not that heavy, carrying a small hatchet and a dozen heavy-duty woolen socks, unlike many others Eris met along the way. The logic was to camp at night, put on a clean pair of dry socks before rebooting, and wash in a brook or stream the dirty and damp socks and dry them over a small fire. Additionally, the backpack contained an extra watch cap and mittens, 
a pouch for three dozen big cigarette lighters, ideal for starting little campfires, stolen from a 7-Eleven weeks ago, a large pouch in the center for any light food goods that could be carried, including a small pan for boiling water and a fork. Harris also carried a canteen and a lightweight winter sleeping bag. Keeps you warm at night, the red tag read, inside of an army blanket wrapped around a Bible and Harris heart-shaped locket. Harris managed to only get off the New York Turnpike and now Mass Turnpike only when a store could be seen. Carefully entering a mall or occasional gas station, food was the number one necessity. If the shop or store was vacant, grabbing candy bars or jerkies of any type and taste was perfect. Fairly light, full of protein and sugar for the long walk. When an individual was there to wait on heirs, $300 of cash, if the store accepted it, would do. Otherwise, bartering a pair of socks or a lighter would get what was needed. Using the in-and-out-nobody-gets-hurt method from an old SNL skit, Eris would get back to the matter at hand, walking to Cape Cod. The further into Massachusetts, the more often were the moments when strangers could appear and voices could be heard, also more frequently stores for reloading food supplies. A church with doors open beckoned Eris to rest a while and talk. This day, Eris rested a bit, chatting with a pastor that seemed devoid of the madness that ruled everywhere else. When walking through a couple of inches of snow, Eris headed out aiming for the shoe city, Brockton, by the end of the day, hopefully to the old stone tower at D.W. Field Park and protection from weather and any harm. Ayers says out, out loud, quote, today is December 17, 2044. I have eight days until Christmas, unquote. Tomorrow, I find old Route 28 and head for Cape Cod. Good, chilly, but sunny, Ayers thinks and pushes each step, feeling what salmon or turtle or migrating bird must feel as they swim, crawl, or fly closer to their home. This was the right thing to do. Family returns to one, one to the center of who they were, and also to who they have become. Of course, some negative thoughts enter the mind while walking. Is everyone okay? Alive even? Do they still live in the old homestead Cape Cod home, with old weathering shingles? After 17 days of walking, and hours of mentally reliving the horrors of being attacked and beaten, Air stomps down or claps to regain focus, clearing the mechanism to borrow a term from the Manchurian Candidate, a book from the last century by Richard Condon. December 22nd, an heiress approaches the old Route 28 Wareham sign, showing the gateway to Cape Cod with stone-built lighthouses on each side of the road. Arriving to this point is exciting, and a sense of joy at almost being home takes over as the steps get a little quicker and longer. Ayers can only think now of Buzzards Bay and the Bourne Bridge, crossing over the canal. As for tomorrow, today we will head that way until a safe location can be found to start a little fire and bring some trees or big rocks set up a lean-to for one. Washing and drying socks and putting on dry ones to sleep in, eating some beef jerky and drinking some fresh, cold, very cold water finishes the day. Snowfall during the night will slow the pace today. But Ayers is determined to reach the bridge that means the last leg of a trip begun over three weeks ago. Even from a mile away, Ayers could see the Bourne Bridge was missing its middle, and her heart rate increased, wondering how will I get across, or do I add more time to my trip by moving north to the other bridge, Sagamore, which also crosses the Cape Cod Canal. Also, more and more people began appearing, which scared Ayers. Arriving in their properly named Buzzard Bay, Ayers trades a lighter for a burger made from a mystery meat, which is the first decent food Ayers consumed since leaving Albany, and it was delicious. Good news, too, as there was a man with a boat. 
who would barter for a quick ride to the other side in another hour. Skipper agreed to take five lighters as his fare. His name was Sam, and he got fuel for his little boat by siphoning gasoline from wherever he could find it. Harris was happy to get underway and enter out to the last part of the trip, wondering if the canal ever froze over so one might walk across it. Last day, also Christmas Day, and Osterville was within sight. Still standing, it was the home Harris had been drawn to these many months, and through a window, Harris' mother saw her and ran to meet her. My girl, Mama would say, what a wonderful Christmas present you are. Come in and see Papa and tell us how you got here. Papa smiled broadly and said, Sarah, my daughter, come give us a hug. Taking off all her gear and moving her big wing in her coat, Harris, as she called herself so as not to be thought as a woman, now stood as a woman in front of the fireplace, warming herself and tearing up often as she retold the story of her ordeal, including the belly buds revealing she was carrying a six-month-old fetus, the last mark of the beating back in June. Sarah, after eating a feast prepared by her loving mother, wept the joy and slept with a peace not enjoyed for years. Home, while the rest of the war continues in insanity, one can begin a new cycle of life, teach of what could be. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And that's a pretty good story. And to be honest with you, that could actually happen. Um, you know, there's been stories about that since the Cold War days. Uh, but the story is just pretty poignant. So my next story is kind of a scary one. And it's called The Hitcher. Be careful who you pick up by Philip Augley. It was August and Peter was driving to Wales to stay the weekend with his mother when the urge hit him. The timing couldn't have been better. It was midsummer. Every service station at major road junction was lined with hitchers, swinging their thumbs back and forth, eager for a lift. Peter pulled up in front of the first one he saw. Where are you going, he asked. St. David's, you know, in West Wales, the hitcher replied in a tone Peter disliked. He knew where effing St. David's was. From the very off, the hitcher couldn't keep his mouth shut, asking him this, asking him that. He even dared to criticize his driving, tell him he was too close to the curb. All Peter needed was a nice remote lay-by, and he would take this guy out. He even considered swinging a 12-pound monkey wrench he always kept by his side into the guy's face while he was driving. That would be too risky, and he never took a chance. I'm going to pull over for a sec, Peter announced a half an hour later, seeing a suitable lay-by head. Just keep driving, said the hitcher, and, and keep, get your hands away from that monkey wrench, otherwise they'll blow your head off. He removed a gun from under his jacket. Peter's insides turned to lead. This was his worst nightmare. For years, the only thing that had terrified him more, more than being caught was picking up a version of himself. I've got money, Peter quickly declared, trying to act as businesslike as possible and hoped that it might only be a robbery. I don't want money. Just drive. Peter drove for two hours. The hitcher didn't say anything except keep driving each time Peter asked where they were going. They were now driving through Harborford West, and Peter knew that in ten miles they would hit the dark, treacherous cliffs St. David's Bay. Peter's mind was racing, trying to figure out how to get out of this. He considered making a jump for it, even stopping and calling the man's bluff see if he would shoot him, but he couldn't muster enough courage to do either. They eventually reached a deserted car park, and they both got out, the gun still trained on Peter, the hitcher motioning towards the cliffs. Well, Peter said as he approached the edge, well, what, said the hitcher, what do you want? I don't want anything. Why are we here, then? The view? Peter ventured in a last-ditch effort at humor. I'm wondering whether you're going to jump or whether I'm going to have to shoot you. Wait, said Peter. Do you know who I am? Does it matter? I'm the hitchhiker killer everyone's been at looking for. 
There's a reward offer me, stammered Peter. Millions of pounds. You'll take the lot. Just got to take me in. Hit your smile for once. Looks like it's my lucky day, then. Peter felt relieved. He would go to prison for the rest of his life, but at least he wouldn't be shot down like an animal on a cliffside. But something wasn't right. The gun was still trained on him. I've been hitching around the roads of Britain for the past ten years, waiting for you to show up, said the hitcher. You killed my wife. Peter looked at the man in terror. No, wait! A few minutes later, the hitcher sat in the car, smoking one of Peter's cigarettes. What an idiot, he mumbled to himself. It was always the same with these copycat killers. As soon as they knew the game was up, they always pulled the tough guy card. Always pretended to be the real hitchhiker killer to try and save their sorry asses. Take the roar reward, they always said, so predictable. Then there was the look on their faces when they heard, You killed my wife. He loved that bet, almost as much as when he pulled the trigger. The hitcher finished his cigarette and got out of the car. He started rolling it over the edge of the cliff. Once he heard it crash into the sea below, he walked off into the Welsh mist, as he had done so many times before. So that's a pretty good story about a serial killer. Um, kind of makes you wonder about picking up hitchhikers. And now I have a science fiction story for you from Harry Hogg. It's called Freedom from the Internet, a flash fiction science fiction. As I stand, staring impassively into the camera, my nervousness it causes me to sweat and it glistens in my thinning hair. The air conditioning in this cell is poor. Little airflow from above, but it doesn't reach me. When the camera fuzzes, blinks, and comes to life, on the screen a judge stares for a moment, taps the screen with his forefinger, then looks at me. In front of him are three equal neat stacks of paper. Earlier, the prison warden had brought me breakfast and told me that the whole world will be watching the trial. Citizens of every country will see the drama unfold live everywhere on earth. After a minute, the judge puts spectacles on the bridge of his nose, partly covers the sacks of skin that have reddened under his eyes, and he pulls a folder out the paw before speaking in a resonant, clear voice. He looks directly into the camera, directly into my eyes. The evidence has been examined. I find you guilty of the charges accused. Have you anything you would like to add before I pass sentence? The camera changes back. The light above me brightens, and the heat causes a bead of sweat to run down my forehead and form at the end of my nose. I shake my head, unable to swat it away. My wrists are restrained by zip ties to the armrests of the chair, outside the viewing range of the camera, which keeps a tight zoom on my face and the bead of sweat on my nose. I am guilty of no crime, I answer in a firm manner, but I feel weary and resigned to my fate. The judge is unimpressed. You are guilty of the most heinous of crimes, he affirms, and the camera quickly flashes back to show his stern, bulldoggedly framed face growling at me. And this will be your last opportunity to make apology to those who you've harmed through your selfish and defiant act. However, I must warn you, the punishment is set by law, and no matter what you wish to say, the sentence won't be affected. Your apology will have no effect on the sentencing pronounced by this court. My face reappears on a screen. I have done nothing wrong, I repeat, firmly sweat rolling down the back of my neck. Silence, the judge thunders. The camera catches the sound of his outburst, but only comes back to him as he concludes. Let the record show that this prisoner is unrepentant. The judgment of this court is that the prisoner maliciously and without instruction removed his neural connector with the purpose and effect of disconnecting himself from the Internet. I further find that the motivating factor for this egregious, willful, and repugnant crime was his contempt for community rights and the act of setting out to free himself from the web, the judge says, reading his notes. 
Then he looks up, during which time the camera flashes to me, my face, then to the judge. I further find that the subject was fully capable of knowing the enormity of the crime. Judge pauses momentarily in delivering the sentence. It is therefore my judgment that you will remain forever disconnected from the Internet from this day forward. Wait, did I hear that correctly? Could it be? Is the judge allowing me the freedom to raid my humanity? The camera is on me. My face looks tired, but my eyes are open and even bright. I don't understand. I'll be an individual thinker for the first time since I was a boy living on the island, lying under bright bedclothes on clean white linen. I'll have the opportunity to live in a world where I can have an original thought, genuine emotions, and the chance to breathe the ocean air, hear the gulls screeching, taste the salt coming in off the tide. I cannot speak. I am overwhelmed. The court had recognized my fight for freedom, the rights to my thoughts, to speak my mind, free to see the trees and the mountains. I'm emerging from a long, terrifying nightmare in captivity behind the Internet. The camera switches away to the judge, the whole world having seen my tears of gratitude. The judge coughs, holding his left fist to his mouth. Quiet in the courtroom, he says, hearing the gasps of disbelief from around the world, then continues. The printer's IP address, 999.888.777.666, shall be erased from the Internet immediately. I feared my fate for two years, but finally the law has rewarded my struggle, and now others will follow me. I will be a legend. The judge again pauses, insisting on silence from a shocked civilization. It is further ordered by the court that the prisoner shall be taken from his cell to a medical facility under the court's jurisdiction and have all sensory organs surgically removed, so that he may not see, hear, taste, or speak with any other human being for the rest of his natural life. Wait, no, I have done nothing. And that's the end of the story for that. And it's kind of um, kind of a story that makes you think about the future, or maybe the future of AI, or the future of looking at your phones and iPads too much. So my last story, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, is one that I wrote because my original story got dropped, and I didn't find out till the last minute. So this story is called The Trouble with Leprechauns, a short fictional tale of the first leprechaun in the Americas. Connor O'Shaughnessy wasn't an overly bright young man compared to some. He wasn't particularly handsome either. He was just another tenant farmer, like so many others these days, working the rocky land for another rich landholder, trying to eke out a meeker living. He was unmarried, mostly due to his lack of prospects. His parents had died during the famine years, and Connor had grown up in an orphanage. It was 1878, and almost anyone who could leave Ireland had done so, or were trying to leave because of the famine during the last generation, and there were still no prospects for a better life. This included nearly all women of marriage age, at least in Connor's village of Kilbegan, County Westmeath, anyway. Connor usually spent his free time and a few of the coins he earned from the little patch of farmland he lived on at the local pub. There wasn't anything else to do for fun anywhere near here unless you wanted to travel up to Mullingar. This night was much like any other. Connor went to O'Malley's pub to spend his spare coin and complain about his miseries to his friends, as they would do with him. Once in a while, the pub owners would bring in a local group and they would play a few of the old tunes. Some were toe-tappers, and other songs were of lost loves. No one dared play any rebel songs these days as someone always had to use the authorities for a couple of coins. The Americas were the draw for any who could save up enough for passage in one of the notorious coffin ships. Connor had his sights set on fleeing this hard scrabble life for a better one in North America. 
He didn't care if it was Canada or the United States. America was a place of dreams these days. The problem was he couldn't save enough money to book passage. Seemed every time he thought he had enough, they raised the price, and he was forced to return home and try again another time. He tried not to spend too much in the pub, but he also knew he couldn't just stay all alone in his dark cottage every night. He needed human company now and again, or he would go mad. And was leaving to head home, much like any other night, he said goodnight to his friends and neighbors and walked up the lane to the road home. The moon was up, shining right over the fields on either side of the road. As he walked down the road between the rock fences, alone with his thoughts, he heard a sound off to his left. It sounded like someone clearing her throat as if to bring attention to themselves. Connor looked up and stared into the field where the noise had come from and saw a wee man dressed in some very old-style clothing standing on the rock fence wall. He had a shillelagh in his hand and a taunting smile on his face. Connor knew instantly who this had to be, a leprechaun. Connor had heard the stories of these fake tricksters and knew to be wary. As he stopped, the wee man introduced himself as Cormac and asked Connor, Where are you heading this fine evening? Connor replied carefully, I'm on my way home for the night. What are you doing out here? Connor grinned and said, I'm out on a tear tonight. Would you care to join me for a wee bit of fun? I have some coins, so you needn't bother with spending your own. You look like a young man down on his luck anyway. Connor didn't have any money to spare, as he had only brought enough for one pint of beer this night back at O'Malley's, and that was long gone now. He smiled and replied, What did you have in mind, sir? Cormac pooed and said, Don't sir me, young man. I'm sure you know who I am, but I assure you I mean you no harm. I'm just out for a wee bit of fun, and you look like a lad who could use some cheering up. Will you join me for a wee dram or two before you head home? Now Connor, not being drunk, knew what the stories told of what happens to a man that accepts any food or drink from one of the fae. You end up asleep in the land of Tirnaog, where time runs a bit slower. If you manage to escape, years may have passed, and the world will have passed you by, or so he had heard from the Shanake. He politely declined, telling Cormac, I'm sorry, but I've got a long day ahead on the morrow. I need to get home. Maybe some other time, perhaps? Cormac frowned and asked, Are you refusing a drink or two with me this night? It'll not go well with you to say no. Cormac gave him a tired smile and replied, Nay, good sir. I'm not refusing, all right. Just not tonight, if you please you. I'm tired and need my sleep for the morrow. I'd be glad to share a cup or two with you some other night. Connor hoped the leprechaun would let him go his way and forget the whole matter. But he didn't know the custom so well. Cormac smiled again. I would gladly accept your offer to drink with me some other night as a promise. But so you know, this promise must be kept or you will be cursed for breaking your word with me. Do you understand? Connor nodded and told him. Yes, I understand. I will keep my word to you and meet up with you right here in this very spot on another evening such as this where we can share a cup or two together. Cormac held out his small hand and spat on it. He held it out, waiting for Connor to do the same to seal a bargain. Connor spat on his calloused hand and shook with Cormac, thinking, I really need to get to America now. Get away from all of this. As he turned back towards his little cottage, he looked over his shoulder, but Cormac was already gone. Maybe I was just imagining things. I've been working too hard for nothing, and I'm starting to see things that aren't there. Connor thought about the encounter and tried to shake it off on the way home. I just need a good night's sleep and I'll forget all about tonight. The next day he rose from his bed and made ready to get out to one of the fields to work. As he walked out the door of his little house, he noticed a small sack on the bench by the door. Just a nondescript leather sack with something in it. Connor wondered where it came from and decided to look inside. 
When Connor opened up the sack, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He poured the contents into his hand and several gold coins fell out. This was more money than he'd ever seen in his young life. More than enough to book passage on a ship bound for the Americas. Without another thought, he went back into his little cottage and packed his meager belongings. Everything he owned went into one large sack over his shoulder. His rent was paid up for the month, so no one would miss him for a few days. More than enough time to get to Galway Bay and find a ship bound for the Americas. As he walked west from his village, and the only life he had ever known, he thought again about the Lambricon and now the small sack of gold coins, and wondered if they were intertwined somehow. Did Cormac leave the gold for me to remind me of my promise to him? Leprechauns were notoriously miserly with their gold, according to the old storytellers, so why would a leprechaun be leaving me some gold coins without so much as a note? Maybe the gold came from someone else. As Connor made his way towards Galway, he couldn't help but think that the gold had to have come from the leprechaun, and that Cormac would be along any time now asking for something in return. When Connor decided to stop for a dinner break at midday, he sat down in a meadow and took out some water, hard cheese, and bread. As he sat there admiring the view, thinking about how much he would miss all of this, he heard his small harump from behind. Sure enough, it was Cormac standing there with the same smile he had the night before. Did you get the present I left you, he says to Connor. Connor jumped a little in surprise, but recovered enough to respond. I wondered if that was yours. I also wondered that if it was yours, what you'd be asking for in return. Cormac grinned a mighty grin. Why, Connor, me lad, have you no faith? I want to travel with you to the Americas. I've had enough of dear old Aaron. I want to see someplace new. There aren't enough people here anymore to play with, and I heard you wanted to go across the ocean, so I decided to trick you into taking me with you. I have given you more than enough gold to take us both, and then some. If you help me make it across, I'll reward you once we arrive on the other shore. Connor didn't know what to make of this request. He needed the money, but he wasn't worried about any more requests along the way in exchange for his promise last night. He decided to agree and be very careful of making any more promises to Cormac in the future. Connor said to Cormac, I agree to your terms. Am I still indebted to you regarding a drink or two someday? Cormac laughed and replied, Me boyo, you still owe me a couple of drams of poitine, but it can wait until we get to the Americas. Once we make it safely across, we will settle on your promise to me. Connor finished his dinner as Cormac waited, both of them commenting on not seeing their beloved Aaron again and the wonderful landscapes they were leaving behind. When Connor was finished, they started on their journey to Galway Bay to find a waiting ship. Once they arrived, Connor remarked about anyone seeing Cormac, but the leprechaun replied, Only you could see me because of your promise to me. Connor found a ship bound for Nova Scotia, Canada. There were no ships bound for the United States in port now, and none expected soon. Most of those usually sail out of Cork anyway. Connor didn't care as long as he was headed for, to North America. He had heard that land was pretty much free for the taking in a lot of places over there. He wanted to get his share before someone changed their minds. The passage was rough across the North Atlantic, but they finally made it to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Cormac stayed quiet the whole way across, only whispering to Connor when he was alone, which is rare in a boat like this full of Irish immigrants bound for the Americas. Once they arrived and stepped off the ship, Connor started asking around about where to find land to farm. The English in Dartmouth didn't care for the shanty Irish getting off the boats and possibly taking what they thought was theirs, so they told all who asked, go west. Connor used a large portion of the gold he had left to buy a wagon and some oxen for a trip across the wooded frontier of eastern Canada. As he was getting everything ready, he asked Cormac, when do you want to have that drink together to celebrate our successful trip? 
Cormac had been rather quiet ever since they had boarded the ship together in Galway. He gave Connor a wan smile and said, I had no idea that my magic was bound to Aaron. I have no magic here and need you to rely on. I am still a fake creature and only you can see me for now, but I have no power to take you to Tiranog in this new land. I am at your mercy. Connor laughed for the first time in a very long time. He also felt free for the first time in his young life and told Cormac, Let's find a bottle of whatever they call poutine here and drink to our new lives. You may follow along with me as I find my way in this new land or find your own way as you please. I will be grateful for your company if you wish to travel with me. I find that you bring me good fortune when we are together and would I like that to continue. Maybe I will bring you good fortune in return. Cormac smiled a little and said, I like the sound of that. I've lived a very long life, but I fear that may be changing without my connection to Aaron, and I want to enjoy everything I can while I'm still able. Let's go find a bottle to celebrate our good fortune. Connor set out to find a bottle of something good to drink. He still had enough gold coin left to provide a good living once he found somewhere to settle down. Then he thought about poor Cormac and wondered if the leprechaun would ask for what was left of his coin once they settled Connor's promise. Without that money, Connor would be penniless in this new land, and the thought of that suddenly terrified him. He thought about it as he purchased a bottle of Irish whiskey from a trade store, the proprietor telling Connor that he had traded for it with another Irish immigrant also heading west. Connor returned to his camp looking glum. Carmack popped out from the tent and saw the look on his face. He asked, What happened? Did you not find anything suitable to drink? Connor showed him the bottle, and Cormac grinned with a sparkle in his eyes. Where did you find this? This is top-shelf whiskey from Aaron. Even I rarely get a sip of something like this. Connor told him about the trader while Cormac filled a couple of cups. Cormac looked at Connor and said, Slancha, then tipped his cup for a drink. He wiped his mouth with his sleeve and smiled. That is some fine whiskey. Go ahead. What are you waiting for? Connor looked at him and asked, If I drink with you, my promise is kept. Will you take your gold back then? Cormac broke out in hails of laughter. The whiskey ate that a little. After a moment, Cormac caught his breath and replied, Nay, economy lad, that gold is for you to make a new life here. Use it wisely and share it with whom you wish until it's gone. I know you'll use it wisely. I have no fate magic here to force you to do anything anymore. I know you have a good heart, and I will stick by you until it's time for me to go. Connor smiled and took a healthy drink of the whiskey in the cup. He grimaced as it went down. He wasn't used to such strong drink. Cormac poured another and another while they laughed and sang some old songs as they passed the bottle back and forth that night by the campfire. The next day, Connor woke up with a head like a rock and looked for the leprechaun. Cormac was nowhere to be seen. He decided he couldn't wait. It was time to break camp and head west. The leprechaun knew how to find him if he wanted. There was still a little whiskey left in the bottle that Connor decided to save for another happy time. Connor eventually found a place to start a farm in a border area of the United States that no one was really paying much attention to. There were a lot of Americans there, along with some French Canadians, mostly loggers. There were also a few other immigrants from other countries who had found their way to this place, the local Indians called a rustic. After the drinks that night, Cormac disappeared. It was as if once Connor's promise to him was fulfilled, the leprechaun had no more reason to remain. Connor still thought of him as a good friend and often asked himself where he went after Connor went to sleep that night. As for Cormac, like any of the Fae, once the promise was fulfilled, Connor wasn't bound to him anymore and he could play his tricks on other unsuspected people all over the new continent. He didn't need magic for that. 
He had grown fond of young Connor and their travels together, and he didn't want to begrudge him the little bit of gold since he had kept his promise. Besides, he had plenty more stashed away in his pockets. He now knew that if things didn't go right for him here in his new land, he could always trick another into taking him back to Aaron someday. People were so gullible when it came to the promise of easy money. And that's my story. I hope you liked it. And like the other stories I read to you, um, and I try, you know, I always try to give you a bit of a variety. I didn't have any poetry this week, which I'm a little bit sorry about, but I'm sure I'll find some for next week. So don't forget to read the newsletters for the shows available in the Medium, Substack, and the blog section of my website, Crown Behad. And then my parting song for this week is titled Tom's Wager, Road to Muff, Sixpenny Money from the Barley Bree.
would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of Crown Beehive Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Crown Beehive Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a Shauna Key, I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Slongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.